Hello, everyone. Redcoat here. I got Santier here with me. Say hello, Santier. Hello, Santier. <laughs> the kidder. This guy. He's a cad. Um, <laughs> and uh, today we're going to be talking about boss design in video games, specifically the, the concept of what are bosses for, some different versions of design that seemed kind of bad, some that seemed pretty good, and certain things that we can try and do to improve that in the future. So let's uh, start with what is a boss for in a game? So, uh, Santir, what do you think on that? Well, usually what I think of for a boss is either it's fulfilling some sort of narrative role, which is a fairly common one, uh, where the narrative says, okay, this is a spot where a boss battle should occur. Usually, though, that's going to be linked to pacing. So when you look at a game, there's usually a curve of interest or there's different ways of describing it, uh, intensity, whatever you want to call it. But stuff leads up to a boss battle. A boss battle happens, and then there's a bit of a, a letdown period where you're like, okay, that just happened. Let me go find a safe point or, or whatever. Yeah, it's kind of like in uh, in storytelling when you go at the very beginning, the prologue, and then you, you get to the rising action, and then you get to the climax yeah. and uh, with a complex story. And certainly in video games, just because it's usually a longer form experience, you have mm -hmm. multiple climaxes and usually a boss appears at these points yeah and then you get a denouement afterwards yeah um and then bosses will also fulfill a role of like testing the player mm -hmm. um to see if they have learned how to play the game yeah definitely that's the, like the mechanical role for sure yeah or it often is yeah uh knowing that we have the idea of what a boss is often used for right Let's look into like some examples of bosses we've seen in the past, um, or actually before that. Let's talk about what kind of makes one good in these roles, I think. In terms of uh, good design for those, fulfilling those roles? Yeah, good design for a boss in, when fulfilling a role. Like, let's, let's go with the narrative one first. So good design for a narrative boss is that it, it mechanically, the way that the encounter functions, feels appropriate to the character that has been presented. So, for example, if it's a very serious sort of character, the way that the fight should play out should feel serious. If it's a very goofy character, the fight should probably feel goofy in some way. So that would be things, for example, like managing the tension, making sure that it's not doing weird bugs. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that seems kind of obvious. But there can also be a lot of other behaviors where uh, the boss can do something fairly nonsensical. Mm -hmm. And if it's supposed to be a fairly serious encounter, you can have... Immersion breaking moments when the boss is something that is really kind of comical and that can create dissonance with the narrative presentation of the boss and can cause the player to take them less seriously because the players, most players are probably going to relate pretty heavily to characters based on their interactions with them. And when you actually are doing something with them, that is a highest form of interaction. So seeing the narrative presentation of the character, you know, what they do in cutscenes or dialogue or whatever is one level, but then when you're actually interacting with them, uh, it's another. So it's the difference between, say, uh, talking with someone about soccer or playing soccer with them. Yeah. Oh, it's kind of an interesting thing because, I mean, that slightly off-topic is the that's the whole point of, like, um, those action button press things. Quick time events. Yes. That. That. That thing. You saved me again from my bad memory. <laughs> um but yeah, that's usually the point of that. And I remember in um, 
Resident Evil 4, mm-hmm. um, there were boss battles that had that kind of concept inside, um, wrapped up in, in the combat, where it's mm-hmm. like you do the fight for a little while, and then a cinematic scene would kind of... The player would be attacked with a cinematic scene, for lack of a better term. Like, right. You get cutscenes attacking you. Yeah, like you're you're fighting the boss, and then suddenly cutscene, and then there's this button, and he's trying to press into you, and you're mashing the button to try and push him back. Um, yeah, and there are actually plenty of examples of these being done well and these being done poorly. Yes, um, but it is definitely one of the ways to keep the narrative interactive um, during the during a fight. If you mm-hmm. need something special to happen, yeah, particularly if you need something that's outside normal game functionality to emphasize some sort of action or to try to make it feel more special or unique. Um, But one of the dangers of doing that is you can break too much of the flow. Most definitely. We've seen many games where you start to expect that your gameplay is going to be interrupted. And that's what you don't want whenever you're doing those, for sure. Yeah. Also, thinking on the standpoint of um, of the narrative boss fight, one of the other things that... Uh, helps with the implementation of them is just where you're putting them, um, I feel. Um, how you're interspersing them in the game. Because you don't want to have too many of them because then the then they lose their gravitas. But at the same time, you don't want to have too little of them because then the actual concept of what the game is about, these don't fit into that lexicon anymore. Yeah, yeah, where those characters, if they're not actually present, aren't present. Yeah, it's just like, you're fighting this dude. You should care about him. Why? He's got a lot of health, and he does a lot of damage. I don't really care about him because this was a story game. Like, if this was some other, if this was a game where I didn't actually pay attention to anything that was happening up to this point, uh, then, uh, then yeah, I'd probably think a little bit more of him. Uh, but right now, he's just he's just a set of mechanics. Yeah, but sometimes that can work out well if it's a compelling set of mechanics, right? That's fair. Um, and that's where things like the skill testing boss can come in, mm-hmm. right? Where you're designing a boss around testing the player's skill. So this is um, uh, a slight aside, but kind of a difference between this sort of boss and a, a narrative boss is sort of the end of the design you're coming from. So there's a concept that uh, gets talked about, particularly by Mark Rosewater, uh, top-down design versus bottom-up design. Bottom-up design is where you have the mechanics and you build the flavor out of that. Um, top-down design is where you have the flavor and you build the mechanics out of it. Yeah. So those are coming from opposite angles. And narrative bosses are generally going to be top-down design. That's what you really want to do with them. You want to make sure that the mechanics match the flavor of who the character is. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're making a boss that's a mechanically-oriented boss, something, say, uh, just to pull a random example out, if you have a Mario game and you're making a boss that's supposed to test, say, wall jumping, I don't know what you're making, but you would make a character that effectively tests wall jumping and then from that build the flavor of that character, right? Yeah. Um, and that's that would be bottom-up design. And both have valid uses and valid roles. And games that are going to tend to test mechanical aptitude, um, the player's mastery of the game systems more, are going to generally be more bottom-up oriented design of their boss characters. Mm-hmm. So when they break that they have to be very careful to make sure they're doing it in a way that doesn't violate the feel of the game yeah and that's a tough line to walk generally speaking yeah as um as you always want you want your game to have a mechanical identity along with its narrative identity for sure and ideally the two of them 
kind of mesh into each other. Like, that's what you really want. Yeah. But thinking on that, we move on to the third type of um, boss battle, which is kind of the, the puzzle um, the puzzle boss. Puzzle bosses are a very interesting idea because they're approaching a different sort of concept, right? Yeah. Um, and, and you're right in saying that's a third sort of category because instead of being driven necessarily by the flavor or by trying to mechanically test the player's aptitude at playing the game, it's asking for the player to solve a puzzle. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about this is that it can provide a sort of difference of kind, the sort of idea that the gameplay here works a little bit differently than it does elsewhere in the game, or it makes the player have to focus on something different. Um, There are different ways of executing on this, though, and one of the big dangers of it is veering too far Mm -hmm. from the game, and all of a sudden you're doing something very different. And puzzle bosses have a different tension to them, um, and they tend to be more cerebral and less visceral. Yes, definitely. Like, looking at that that kind of idea of the tension that you can kind of pull out of those um, out of those battles, like with a, well, not necessarily a battle, because it's a boss, but right. it's, a, it's more of a, um, it's more of a conflict um, in a different way. Yeah, it fits into something that's more of a deliberate style game, like uh, Portal, better than, say, an action game. Devil May Cry is a good example. That's an action game. Yeah. Putting a puzzle boss into a Devil May Cry game is suddenly making you focus on things differently, because, again, uh, the Devil May Cry series is more of a visceral series, right? It's all about that visceral feel of things and that fast-paced action and getting into that sort of flow state. Yeah. And so suddenly saying, oh, now we want you to cerebrally engage with this game and try to figure out how to do something that's maybe a little obtuse or, yeah. or different is suddenly taking you out of the feel and flow and experience of the game. Definitely, because uh, at the end of the day, in a, D- in a DMC game, you the want that has been drawn out of the player, let's say, is I want to hit things and I want to hit them stylishly. Yeah. Um, for those two, for those two wants, the uh, concept of I want to figure out something about how this guy works and then solve a problem. Right. Se. Like the problem that you're solving in in DMC is I want to kill this faster. Right. And it's not to say that it can't work, but it has to be done in a way that doesn't detract from the visceral aspect of the game. Definitely. Like, it needs to be... Like, you can you can still do things to make it feel like you're being smart about what you're doing, or mm-hmm. even, even more so make it so that there is a trick to doing this boss in a certain way, but you still want to let the player... Get that um, get that feeling that they've been getting throughout this throughout the rest of this game, which is just I can slash things, I can do this stylishly. Right, and the real danger with the puzzle boss and that sort of game again is that difference of tension and that cerebral feel, which takes you out of that heightened action oriented state. Yeah, thinking of a uh, of a puzzle boss that I feel is one of the best examples of this. It's uh, Mister Freeze from the. Uh, from the uh, Arkham City, I yeah, think. Yeah, Arkham City. Because first off, we're in a game that you are exploring a lot. You're trying to... What's the word? You're, a detective? Yeah, you're a detective, yes. You are inclined to find clues and try and figure stuff out. That is what the game is about, because you're bad. Yeah. <laughs> it, it has that element of cerebralness to it, right? Yeah. Almost all of the boss battles in Arkham City have a bit of a puzzle element to them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always something that you need to figure out that lets you then get the pull the wool over the, uh, or rather pull the cowl over the enemy in <laughs> in uh, question. 
Yeah. And nowhere is this better shown off than in the Mr. Freeze fight. Yeah. Uh, for those unfamiliar with the battle, um, a quick summary of it. You encounter Mr. Freeze in a room covered in ice, and you have different ways of performing takedowns. These are actions that, for normal enemies, one-shot them, but the idea being that instantly locks them out. But what happens when this fight is that uh, you use a takedown against Mr. Freeze, and he does something to the room that prevents you from being able to use that particular takedown again. And so you have to use a set number of different takedowns to actually beat him. So he makes you figure out how to use your environment to beat him, which is a very interesting yeah. puzzle to solve. It's a very interesting puzzle to solve, and it's also very narratively uh, accurate to the subject matter in question. Mm-hmm. As whenever Batman beats Mr. Freeze, in uh, like if you read it in the comics or you see it in the in the TV shows, it's always because he outsmarts him. Because Freeze is is usually kind of a cold tank, generally yeah. speaking. He's basically in a mech suit. So Batman always has to outwit him in some way, and this was one of the best examples of of a designer figuring out how to make it feel like the player is outwitting this character. Yeah. So. On the note of like the puzzle boss, and you know, one right. of the concepts we had come into here was the idea that one of the issues you can run into is that you change the gameplay up a bit too much. Right. And this isn't even necessarily just a thing with puzzle bosses, um, but it's with bosses in general. Yeah, for sure. So this kind of goes to there's a certain type of boss. Um, don't necessarily have a great name for it. We're still trying to figure one out to some extent. Uh, it's calling them Colossus Battles, uh, and I'll get into why in just a moment. Or Cram Bosses, which is another idea. Yeah. Uh, the idea behind this is that you have to learn a new set of mechanics to be able to actually fight this battle. Uh, hence the, the, the term Cram, because uh, it's like a cram session yeah. uh, in the middle of your test, which is not where you want to be having a cram session. Um, and uh, the, the reason why I initially called it Colossus Battles was actually based on uh, Castlevania Lords of Shadow, the, the first one. Uh, there are several instances in that game where you fight an enemy that is significantly larger than you, and the way that you fight it is different from everything else in the game. It's kind of like a weird platforming thing where you basically, it's not all that exciting or engaging. You, you go around and climb on this thing and hit certain weak points and hold on when it starts trying to shake you off. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I call it Colossus Battles. Uh, the other reason is because often this is done with enemies that are significantly larger than the player, hence Colossus as well. Mm -hmm. One of the traps that often happens with this is you make something where it's very epic looking, but then because of the size difference, you have no good way of actually allowing the player to engage in battle. So you have to come up with a different set of mechanics to be able to do it. And that's what they did here is you, they came up with this different set of mechanics where you climb over this enemy and hit certain weak points. But this sort of thing is not limited to these oversized bosses and can really be applied to any boss where, for whatever reason, it so greatly changes the gameplay, so orthogonal to the standard method of play, that you have to learn a new set of skills just to fight the boss in the middle of the battle. Not perfect a set of skills you were building, but develop a new set, which is not a time that most players want to be trying to do it. It's too high stress, typically. Or you can make it too low stress, too. Yeah, well, it makes me think of the end of um, uh, Kingdom Hearts. Yeah, I think it's it's okay to spoil some stuff about that. It's been a while yeah. since that game came out. But yeah, at the end of King of Heart, Kingdom Hearts, you, you end up in this battle with this giant spaceship kind of thing. Okay. And um, if I remember correctly... And it's been a little while. This might have been Kingdom Hearts 2. 
Because, yeah, in either case, the main thing is that when you get to that boss fight, you basically end up in a flying uh, straight rail shooter that's not okay. quite like uh, the gummy piloting stages that you had before. Um, because in those ones you had, well, basically those ones played out like a very slow and somewhat cumbersome version of Star Fox. Okay. And for this, it was just basically you're taken around the ship and you basically just kind of fire at the things that you need to fire at and the things come at you so slowly that you can react to them really easily. There was never really a, a scene quite like this anywhere else in the game. Hmm. Actually, when you brought that up, it reminded me of... Uh... Kirby 64, the Crystal Shards. Yeah. With the O2. O2, yes. I remember that fight. Yeah. Basically, it goes from being a 2.5D platformer, side-scrolling sort of platformer, with power combination mechanics that were really cool and like to see again, please, Nintendo. Anyway, uh, this final boss battle suddenly turns into, like, oh, I forget the name, but basically it's a back view of Kirby and you are now flying around the screen and shooting with a oh, projectile yeah. weapon. That makes me think of Welcome to the Fantasy Zone, Get Ready, uh, Space Harrier. Yes, that's the name. I always think of that before I think of the name. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I, remember, I remember that fight. Um, and it's interesting because I know when I was playing it, I actually quite, I, I quite enjoyed it, but it is definitely not the same as the rest yeah. of the combat. No, it isn't. But I, I feel for some reason the Kirby one, it works a little bit better. And probably because Kirby's changing up his powers so much, so you're changing the gameplay so much as it is, it maybe is a little less incongruous. It might be that aspect. I know it was also that boss in particular was a secret boss, like before. Yeah, it was. Um, like you had to do all sorts of crazy stuff before you could make that happen. Well, you had 100% collect all the crystal shards. True, true. Also, that is a, that's an interesting note on the Kirby bosses in particular because they, they fall into this weird area where they have some puzzle elements, but they still manage to stay as, as uh, combat fights. Yeah, but I think that's... The Kirby games tend to incorporate some amount of puzzle Yeah, in general, so it probably is part of why it doesn't feel so out of place. Yeah, I think that's true. Like, there's... Because um, I know all of the... In general, all of the bosses have a very unique have a very unique something that they do. And one of the things that I think Sakurai, um, I believe he's mostly the designer for the the Kirby games. Maybe I'd have to check. Yeah. Um, I know he's been in charge of a lot of them, but yeah. You guys can look it up on the online and see if I'm lying. Um, or just but, wrong. <laughs> but yeah, the, um, the thing about those those battles in particular is that when you enter into them, there is definitely a way to play it where you have to wait until the boss uh, makes a special thing happen and then you react to that and then attack them back. I mean, specifically, the boss produces an eatable thing. Yeah. Um, which is from the very, the very inception of Kirby, where that was all he could do in the beginning. Right. Um, but now with all of the copy abilities the battles have become more of a thing of where you can just deal damage to them throughout the entirety of the battle, and you're just figuring out how to keep dealing damage while avoiding all of their attack patterns. Yeah, it's actually also interesting thinking about this. This came to my head, but Star Fox Adventures Dinosaur Planet, uh, the final boss of that game is basically the same final bosses you have in like most of the other Star Fox games. You're fighting Andros and you're Arrowing. Yeah. But the majority of the game is spent in more of a Zelda-like game, which means that that final boss battle is 
oddly calibrated? It's oddly calibrated. I remember when I played that game and I got to the thing, I was like, oh man, it's General Scales. Uh, he was the main bad guy uh, in that game, by the way. I think the game is a little underrated also. But. Um, yeah, you know, I enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. I will say it wasn't the best. No, but, but it was well polished. I could say that. Yeah, I could see that. Um, there, and I mean, I liked ha- I liked doing staff foo with Fox. That was fun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you get to the fight with General Scales, and Scales is like, "I'm a gonna fight you," and then Andros just shows up out of nowhere, literally out of nowhere. Like, I think he blows the ceiling off of the room, and he was like, "I am the main boss, Scales. You have failed me." Blah, 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 blah. Scales dies, and like Fox is like, "I've got to get in my R wing because." Andros is a floating head, and I have to shoot it. It, it's very out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, it comes, it comes completely out of nowhere. That's a narrative dis- dissonance right there. Yes, a narrative dis- dissonance and a mechanical dissonance, two and one. But yeah, that boss fight. I remember when I first played the game, I could not beat him. Oh yeah, because well, I didn't play Star Fox sixty four like at all, right? So my main experience was the. Uh, Oh, yeah, the, the flying to the floating sections levels. And those levels weren't... They didn't really teach you much about doing it well, I feel. No. Like, they were fancy filler. Yeah. Well, they were like uh, gummy ship stages, right. except slightly less cumbersome. If, if you didn't guess, I didn't like the gummy ship stages, but that's just me. <laughs> um, but they were infrequent and low intensity enough and most of the game was focused around something else that the andros fight really came out of nowhere it's the only boss that you fight in your r-wing you've not had much practice in your r-wing particularly doing this sort of battle and all of your experience in the game up to that point was on different types of bosses and so it very much so worked completely differently and so it was a test for the wrong type of game. Yeah, I think that's a very apt way of describing it. It's, it's like getting an English quiz in the middle of your math class. Sure, maybe you've had a lot of word problems, but it's not the right subject matter. And other stuff has covered it, but not this class. So it's completely out of place. Yeah. So looking into some other elements of boss design, I wanted to tackle a few elements of like traditional boss design and some of the stuff that, you know, we see it a lot. And so we have the temptation to just be like, it's a boss. So it should have these things. Yeah. But in my feeling, it's like a boss should definitely be designed with the game that they're in in mind. And all of the feeling that comes with that. But that that aside, so the traditional boss design, um, if we go back to the NES days, and this is because of the limitations of the systems, right? Sure. The the original boss design was usually the boss had something very simple they did. They had they usually had way more health than a, a normal dude, and it was just they do a thing, you figure out what their pattern is, you react to it, and then you rinse, rinse and repeat, usually with the magic number of three. Yeah, very pattern-driven, right? Yeah. And... Um, this is a thing that, it you know, it sufficed at the time. Yeah. But you go back and you play those games, and I, I well, I'm not going to say I defy you to find enrichment in those boss battles, because someone will, but um, I would hazard that those boss battles don't feel quite as engaging as some of the better design stuff that we've seen uh, to date. Yeah. Like, a lot of those traditional Mario bosses, for example, yeah. are... They're very simplistic, 
and the challenge on them is mostly do you know what to do and at this point in time a lot of especially more entrenched gamers know what to do and so there's no real challenge anymore yeah and that's one of the other parts of it because it's like a it's basically a dumbed down puzzle boss yeah it really is um so it's like it's a puzzle boss that after you solve the puzzle you have to do it again and again and you've already and it's like at this point it's like no longer is this boss something that you really feel like you want to interact with because you've already done the good part of the interaction. Yeah, it's it's when you know how to beat it and it's just the execution. And what can become very frustrating is if it's a long period of time between when you can perform the execution to try to actually take positive action towards beating the boss. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing more frustrating than a boss that can't kill you because you know how to avoid it all of its attacks and you just have to slowly whittle it down yeah it's that thing of where yeah i know what you're doing and i'm just gonna okay come on okay we're done okay i got you we're done no you still have you have another form that does the same thing like slightly faster it's the thousand punch man problem yeah yeah instead of one punch you know it's just (laughs) one punch i love that anime um a lot of people do yeah yeah on that note, though, um, that makes me think of another boss from the past, although he's not quite a traditional boss, but it makes me think of, in Bomberman 64, there's a boss, uh, well, there's several bosses in that game that I really like, because there's this unified design concept that they mm-hmm. follow. Um, so Bomberman 64, like most of the Bomberman games, is about a dude who plants bombs, um, and you use those to, to get through mazes. Um, 64 was unique in that it was in the 3D realm, so your mazes were all had that third dimension to them. Sure. So you were already in this mode of, I want to try and figure out how to get through this. And that was the whole crux of the levels. That was what made them interesting, was figuring out how to get through them and then figuring out, out how to get your gold cards. A slightly more cerebral game. Yeah. So then you're like, okay, so what, what does a boss for a game like that look like? We've had plenty of cerebral games before that kind of have a boss um, that shows up, but they usually end up into the, the traditional puzzle sense. Of, right, which makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense from, it makes sense from an approach standpoint, but your, your implementation has to match, mm-hmm. um, has to make it feel good. So one of the things in Bomberman 64, what they did with their bosses was, uh, granted, you're already using a very cumbersome method of attacking them because... They're usually a very active thing that either flies around whatever precarious thing you're standing on doing their moves and you're just trying to survive long enough to put a bomb on them. Sure. So immediately you already have this aspect of, I need to figure out how to get a bomb on this dude. How do I do this? And usually the boss has a pattern that that winds up in them putting themselves just in place for you to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's the initial solve. Um, it's a non-trivial solve because you have to make sure you don't kill yourself with your bombs. You have to make sure you time them right. There's a bunch of stuff that happens there. Yeah, that you're recognizing where it's at so you can be in position, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but on top of that, the gold cards weren't just limited to normal play. Bosses had gold cards that were associated with them too, which meant that on mm. top of solving the boss battle, solving how to kill this dude, basically with your bombs, um, you also had to figure out 
how do I get the gold cards off of this character, off of this dude? So that meant usually you had to figure out how to blow off a specific part of them or how to knock them out in a specific way. Because um, you could knock them out with big bombs, but you had to figure out when they were susceptible to this. Sure. And so the boss battle itself becomes a puzzle. And the thing of it is that every time you get a gold card, you damage the boss, which varies up how you're actually fighting them. Mm. And so it gives an additional amount of replay value to the boss that you wouldn't normally have. It adds an additional optional puzzle layer. Exactly. Um, and so that's one of the things that I found really interesting about the bosses in Bomberman 64. And it was one of the few cerebral games. I mean, I don't play very many cerebral games. So, you know, m mind you, that's another thing along with that. But it was one of the few cerebral games that when I played them and then when I went to the boss sector of it, I played the boss battles over and over again. Yeah, because it's... Calling it a puzzle is kind of wrong because it's puzzles, right? Yeah. It's a puzzles boss. And then which puzzle bit you can solve at any given time is something you have to kind of figure out. Yeah. Like, when can I solve this aspect of the puzzle? Uh, when can I blow off this wing? When can I blow off that wing? When can I knock it out? Yeah. And so these different goals are are different puzzles that you have to sort of dynamically figure out when you can do them and how to optimally yeah. take advantage of each opportunity you're presented. Yeah, and that was the other thing about it is that they could happen in any order. So right. that would change things about, you know, if you're someone like me who does time trials all the time, like I, I'm a huge racing game fan and that's one of the things that I will do all the time is just do the time trials. Mm -hmm. um, then this boss structure kind of titillates that and the idea that I can figure out what's the most efficient way to, to take this guy down and feel good about that. Yeah. Uh, kind of like when you see a Batman Predator room. Yeah. And yeah. you see people who are, have run the Batman Predator challenges a lot or the rooms a lot where they're like, here is the sequence that I take down the thugs to be able to like do it as quickly and efficiently as possible. And when you watch that, just dismantle a room in like under a minute and it's just like, wow. Yeah. It's as, it's as entertaining to play as it is to watch. Let it be said that gaming is something falls into that social area where you can actually watch somebody play a game and have fun with it. That's for sure. Very true. But actually on the subject of racing, <laughs> because that also brings me to one of the interesting things of putting a boss in something that you wouldn't normally expect them to be in. Sure. And then actually executing well on it or executing badly on it. I have two examples, actually. Mm -hmm. From the same generation of games, actually. So from the N64 era. I played a lot of games back then, so I have a lot of examples from that time. Um, but Diddy Kong Racing um, was a game that had that concept of putting a boss in there that you're like, wait, it's a racing game. Why is there a boss? Um, sure. Why but, not just a final stage? Why a boss? Yeah, why Why a boss? So what's interesting is that so the game worked on a story mode, had kind of a very bare-bones story mode. It was just enough to get you going. It was mm -hmm. just like, um, the different tyrants of the island have taken over their areas, and there's like, well, we do these races to get to them somehow. I don't know how the races actually make you get there. But. Racing game narratives that try to be a narrative about anything... Other, Other than, than racing, racing are usually super nonsensical. Yeah, it's just like we race, and now now we're fighting, fighting you for for control of this thing. And I'm going to race you, and I'm going to beat you. When I go across the goal line, you're defeated. I don't know how that works, but hey, card games on motorcycles. <laughs> anyway, almost um, makes more sense. <laughs> 
Um, so in Diddy Kong Racing, you get to the last the last race, and it's against the big bad, and the big bad's like, oh, I'm going to beat you in a race. And you're like, okay, why does this challenge actually match the rest of it? Because it actually does match the rest of the, of the game. Um, it's a one-on-one race as opposed to the eight-on-one race. So it's a slightly different thing, but it's still a race, mm-hmm. um, which means that you're still inside of the area that you need to be for your boss to, to make sense. Um, but on top of this, the boss is a challenge because he's bigger than you. As soon as he catches up to you, he basically runs you over, and you have to figure out how to get back to him in that way. Right, and then he's big, so he takes up a lot of space on the road, so it's hard to get around him, too. Yeah, so you have to figure out how to deal with that as well. And the the track itself that you're dealing with them on has different lines on it that you can take to try and be faster than him if you want to try and get around him or something. Mm. And so there is an element of interaction with the boss that is non-trivial, but there's also this element of this is still a racing game. You are still focused on finding the best line, doing this as fast as you can. Right. It's be good at racing to beat this boss. Exactly. So this brings me to my other example, which is in Snowboard Kids 2. Now, I enjoyed the Snowboard Kids game. Don't get me wrong. I loved Snowboard Kids. I wish there were, well, there was another one that came out on the Advance. We're not going to go there. Um, <laughs> not so great, eh? Yeah, not too much. Um, so the thing about the bosses in Snowboard Kids 2, because they decided that they wanted to up the ante, so they, they added boss stages. The thing about those was that these were bosses that you had to beat up basically. So you, okay. you had to shoot them to defeat them. So it's a combat encounter in a race. Yeah, a combat encounter in a race. Now, there's some issues with designing something like this because immediately in a race, what's your goal? To get there first. What does getting there first mean? It means expanding the distance between you and your opponent. What does that mean? That means eventually you're not going to be able to see your opponent. So an important question in other racing games that have light combat elements, say uh, the Mario Kart games, yeah. you have things like the red shells where you can fire them forward or backwards. Yeah. Did this game have directionality of your attacks? or? Um, you did have the ability to shoot backwards, but that's not going to help you if, you're around, if your opponent is around the corner. Or, sure. Lord help you, he's um, you know halfway, way back there on the course. Right, if you've like half-lapped him. Yeah, at that point, because the point of those... Those races is that you're supposed to drill them down and defeat them. Right. Ideally, before they get to the end of the track. If they get to the end of the track, they win. So they're racing you, but your goal is to stay on their tail so you can smash them with rocks? Yeah, basically. Well, bombs, but same idea. Yeah, okay. That's an unfortunate dichotomy to have because already um, the game isn't really about shooting people. Like... You do get those abilities. You get the ability to knock people out, but you're using that in service of getting ahead of them. Right. It's more uh, banana peels or whatever in Mario Kart, right? Where what you're doing is you're trying to cost them time so you can pass them the race as opposed to knock off some arbitrary amount of health. Exactly. In contrast to another racing game that had some boss battles in them that were more to how those games worked Mm -hmm. was the F-Zero X or rather F0GX, excuse me, not X, the GameCube version of the game. Um, the specific boss battle I will reference is versus Deathborn. That's okay. his name, Deathborn. I, <laughs> uh, I, I like, I find it funny anyway. It's, it's a fun name in the tryhard style of names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in any case, you run into, you run into Deathborn and you're like, okay, um, 
the guy's like, I'm going to beat you and get the galactic belt because racing racing boss battles don't make sense. Exactly. So anyway, you get into that race, and the whole point of it is he's ridiculously fast, and the track is full of mines, and you will not beat him um, unless you are the best racer, or you cheat. I see. And by cheating, I mean throwing your ship into the mines to go faster. <laughs> Of course. And so this adds this layer of managing your own health to make sure that you stay ahead of the opponent while at the same time trying to avoid dying from throwing yourself into the things that you're using to stay alive, uh, to, to win, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Now, you can try and knock him off the, off the track, but you're, you happen to be in the Blue Falcon, which is it's not a very strong machine. It's, it's in the middle of the road. So it's not effective for that particular strategy. Yeah. Deathborn's machine is one of the most solid ones in the game. So, so it's hard to knock about. Yeah. So your goal is outrace him. Outrace him and, ho- and uh, hope to God that you don't kill yourself. Yeah, I see. So, but that's a, a racing one where you're trying to outperform in racing, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's one of the keys, right, is if your boss battle has the player performing well at what the game is about, then that's a lot better and will generally lead to a better boss battle than one that is not about what the game is generally about, right? It's exactly. not building on the skills the players developed in order to play the game well. Exactly. That's a big core part of what makes a good boss. Like, if we go back to our original statements, you know, he fits in narratively. He has a presence in the narrative that makes sense. But... Even more importantly, I would say, mechanically, he fits in with everything else that you've been doing in this game. Yeah. Um, he, either he tests those, or he presents a, a challenge that is in line with those. Well, yeah, either he tests those, or he presents a challenge that is in line with those, or he just is, he meshes within it. Right. Um, speaking of racing, actually, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't bring this particular battle up. Oh, man. Um in Batman Arkham Knight, there is effectively a boss that's a racing battle where it's a very large enemy. Uh, you have to catch its attention and then lead it into some mines hmm. And in the Batmobile. And Batman Arkham Knight, for the most part, works like other Batman Arkham games, right? Where yeah. you have that uh, combat system and, and other things going on. And they added some interesting stuff that way. But that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about here is I'm talking about a gigantic tunnel machine that's chasing the Batmobile in underground tunnels that you have to lead into explosives to damage. Did that thing kill you in one hit? Or yes. W- yeah. Oof. <laughs> yes, it did. So it was this awkward combination of you had to move slow enough that it caught attention of you and fast enough that it didn't get you and then you had to perform well in the batmobile which i this is one of those things where player reaction on this is going to be mixed but i did not particularly like the batmobile when i play the arkham games it's for flying through the city on my bat cape and beating up thugs right mm-hmm. um with a, a combat system that i find enjoyable and the predator rooms that make me feel like batman so I'm not playing it for the Batmobile. It, there was some interesting stuff done with Batmobile, but for the most part, I don't like driving in games. And so when there's an entire boss battle centered around this, it was not necessarily out of place in the game from the standpoint of being a... Like it was representative of some of the stuff that you did in the game. Right. But the thing is, the Batmobile itself was so optional to use for the most part in the game. 
that making you required to suddenly be good at using it in this particular area. Right, where you, you have to perform correctly because if you don't, you have to start over. Um, I think it did checkpoint after each hit. I've heard that. I okay. never got one hit on it, so I don't know. Oof. <laughs> but um, it it's the sort of thing where it's... The, the example that comes to mind is if there was a Mario 64 boss based around crawling. Technically, you can crawl in that game, but why you'd make a boss around is a little bit beyond me. And the the problems that I had with this boss were twofold. The first is I'd rather fight the enemy that's driving it one-on-one because that would have been more interesting battle. Mm-hmm. But the other is that I detested driving, and then they made a required boss battle around something that's a semi-optional activity in the first place. And that's another sort of warning is you have to be careful about what you make boss battles of, even if it's technically an aspect of your game. You have to make sure you understand how much of an aspect of your game it is and how much players may or may not make use of it if it's more optional. Yeah, uh, that's definitely a big one there because if you uh, if you expect a player to know every all the ins and outs of a particular aspect of the game's functionality that they never had to use, they were never told they had to use it, yeah, nothing in the game told me you have to get good at driving the the Batmobile to be able to beat the game. And I don't even mean like amazing. I mean competent enough at it because I never really got to amazing levels. But so much of the stuff was like, okay, well, if I'm losing too much, I can just quit. I don't have to do it, right? And the problem is I ran into this boss battle. And this is the first time that I had some, some degree of sympathy for uh, the that writer at Bioware that wanted to be able to skip combat, right? Mm-hmm. Because I have this battle that I so detest that I stopped playing the game because of it. Mm-hmm. And if I could literally give them money to not fight that boss battle, I would like the game better. Mm. Now that is an interesting point. And it's now this should be of note, like generally speaking, like, well, for myself, it'd be a thing of, it's definitely a sign of, a, let's say a, a not very strong design when you get to a point of a part of a game and there's a battle there that's supposed to be a part of the rest of the game, but you just um, but there's that feeling of just well I just want to get past this get through this um, and not not that idea of I want to savor this because that's what you want right and that's the interesting thing about it and you have to be careful in making boss battles because it's possible for boss battles to become brick walls and understanding. How important is this boss battle to the playing of the game? How likely is it to be a brick wall? That sort of thing. How much does it tie into why somebody would be buying this game? Um, Those are all really important questions to ask. I did not get Arkham Knight because I wanted to drive the Batmobile. I got Arkham Knight because I enjoyed the, the experience of the other Arkham games, none of which had the Batmobile. Like, I enjoy the Souls games, which are known for their difficulty and challenge and being hard and the various bosses and that stomping your face in um for the most part i think those bosses are fairly fair but that's uh something we'll potentially talk about when i get past my current point um and so it's not the difficulty of the boss that's a turnoff the turnoff for me is that this is a boss that's requiring me to get skill at something i don't care about right and i'm playing the game for fun and so when i encountered something that was so decidedly unfun and contrary to what I wanted to do. It made me say, even though I like 95% of this game, 
the 5% I dislike is preventing me from enjoying the other 95%. Mm-hmm. And this has actually given me a lot to think about in terms of the, I'm not sure ethics of game design or game development is quite the right term, but in terms of having sympathy for making sure that if there's an aspect of your game that is particularly in a franchise series that might be something new that players may not may or may not like and may or may not be buying your game for that you allow it to not dominate their experience yeah that's definitely a a portion of it for sure is because you want to know you, when you make your game ideally Ideally, you want to know what it is that your game is about, like right. Um, and you know there are those there are those times when you're just like, uh, we didn't do any pre-production. We're not ah, don't know exactly what this is about. We're gonna figure this out as we go, and so you might not have an idea of it. But generally speaking, if you have the time to plan it out and think about it, really think about it, and then as you're playing the game, analyze it, right. Um, and and particularly when you're in a series, you have a graph to work off of, right? You can say, here is uh, previous game A. What did previous A game previous game A do? Yeah. What is game B or C or D or whatever doing, and how does that relate to the previous one, particularly when they're under the same title? This is actually um, probably an extensive enough topic yeah, that, that we can discuss it some other time, and it has to do with how you're handling sequels. Yeah. But the the point that I am making here is what the Batman games, the Batman Arkham games, have is a certain style between like the Predator rooms and the combat, right? That's that's what most people at this point are probably going to be, buy a Batman Arkham game for, and probably going to be pretty happy if it has engaging Predator rooms that make them feel like Batman, and combat that's overall enjoyable and provides a bit of a challenge. Yeah. And so... When you throw in the Batmobile boss, and this is actually the second Batmobile boss in the game. The first one uses the Bat Tank, mm-hmm. and that one was also obnoxious, and I hated that one too, but not as much because it was less unbeatable yeah. to somebody with bad driving skills because it's a slower-paced Slower-paced thing, yeah. So as a game designer, I value the experience that I have gained from it in terms of being able to sympathize with people who have similar experiences and I don't mean to complain about that battle existing per se, but I want to highlight the issue that it has. It stopped me from playing a game that I had been enjoying. And as a game designer, I don't want something that I make to do the same thing to somebody else. And it also gave me sympathy for people who would like to be able to, say, skip something that they find extremely distasteful when there's other things that they enjoy in the game more and would rather focus on. Yeah, yeah. And it's a uh, that's one of the harder harder conundrums, but you know we can get into that one on another. Yeah, point. that 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 particular topic, expounding on it, is probably a good topic for yeah for the future. But um, on the boss sector, I feel like we've gone through a lot of stuff here, so I feel like it yeah, would be good so. to let's do a recap of what we think good boss design is, or actually let's let's start with what we think bad boss design constitutes and what we think good boss design is and some of the stuff we can look towards doing when we look to making games right so uh, from my standpoint when i think of a bad boss i think of an experience that is poorly calibrated to the spot in the game where it appears Mm -hmm. you can potentially use that to good effect but something that comes to mind here is pinwheel in dark souls yeah uh for those who are unfamiliar 
you generally will encounter this boss fairly late in the game, and it is only really a challenge when you encounter it early in the game, which you can technically do, but most players won't, uh, making it an extreme pushover. Now, um, it's probably intentional, but when you, particularly in a more linear game, Mm -hmm. Uh, making a boss that's a pushover late in the game or uh, a brick wall early in the game are both being a little deaf to the uh, way that you're... Being deaf to your uh, skill curve. Yeah, to your skill curve. Um, So just being conscious of that. And then a bad boss is definitely one that is too divergent from what the game is in a way that tends to leave a very dissatisfying experience. Yeah, something a... I say a bad boss uh, in that in that regard. A bad boss is something that doesn't necessarily fit into the rest of the mechanical identity of the game. Right. It has its own set of rules that work completely differently from everything else, or sufficiently differently. Yeah. Where a good boss fits in with the overall mechanical feel of the game. Indeed. And reinforces it. And so, yeah, I feel like that's that's the core there, actually. Yeah. Is a good boss fits into the overall feel of your game from a. Uh, from a narrative, from a mechanical... Well, actually, excuse me, let me reorder that. From a mechanical standpoint, and from a narrative standpoint, um, and from a skill and from a skill curve standpoint. Right, it fits into the right spot. Yeah. And just a word of warning, if you're going to make a boss that's substantially larger than the player, wherein they, the only logical way to engage it is different from the rest of the combat system of the game, maybe reconsider that, or try to figure out how that can possibly be an engaging experience, particularly if you have a more visceral game. And I think this is actually another very key key concept that, that came out in the course of this podcast, yeah. is that sort of visceral versus cerebral. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that that is kind of a continuum yes, where games can fall on. And make sure that your bosses don't stray too far from the average position of the rest of your game, or it will break feel and tone of your game. Exactly, yeah. Definitely. So, uh, with that, I feel like we've covered this. I think so. So, um, in the end, a good boss fits your game's skill curve, fits your game's mechanical identity, fits your game's narrative identity, and doesn't break away from the game's average point on the visceral to cerebral curve. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you guys can come up with better words for this. I mean, we're called vernacular games for a reason. In so much as we talk a lot, uh, we talk a lot and figure out different ways to say these things. Um, we're all about expanding the gaming vernacular. So if you guys can figure out different ways of um, saying this better. Particularly if you can come up with a better term than cram boss or Colossus boss for that concept, that would be quite welcome. Yeah. So with that, I would like to go ahead to the sign-off. So, uh, Santir, would you like to sign off? Well, this is Santir signing off, saying have a good whatever time of day it is for you. And uh, this is Redcoat signing off. Play the games you want to play, boyos. <laughs>